Okay. So we are live uh, because we have the custom not to greet people on Tisha B'Av. I will just get into the logistical points. Uh, remind people that if you're joining us here on Zoom and I send you an invitation to be a panelist, that does not obligate you to do anything, but that will allow you to share your video and to unmute when we're having moments for discussion, which we definitely do encourage you to participate in discussion. But please do stay muted, especially if someone's reciting Kina because we want to hear the recitation. But otherwise, um, feel free to unmute and participate in discussion, to drop questions and comments in the chat. Those joining us on Facebook, you can participate by putting your comments directly below the video in the comments section. And those joining us on Dresha Live, unfortunately, we do not yet have uh, an interactive component there, but you are always welcome to join us on Facebook Live or on Zoom instead. Uh, without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Uh, okay. Um, actually, I want to turn it over to uh, Rabbi Amsalem to maybe to just to say a few words, and then I'll pick it up. Sure. Um, so this is a very long-standing Drisha tradition to learn through the keynote together. Um, Rabbi Silber is going to start us off with an introduction to the history of reciting keynote. Um, and we also have several members of the Drisha community who are going to be introducing different keynote as we get to them. Um, we have all the keynote gathered together in a Google Doc. Uh, Noah, are you able to share that with everybody? Uh, yes, I will be sharing one Google Doc that I please ask folks, you know, make a copy for yourself uh, if you want to make adjustments, make things bigger, and then I'll have a separate copy that I share on screen where the Hebrew is much larger. So. Okay, great. So we'll have these keynote um, and uh, either Rabbi Silber or I, or a member of the community, will be introducing each one. Um, and we really want to encourage people to um, to also uh, join in in the conversations with the people on Zoom. Uh, please, uh, if you can use the sort of raise hand icon, we'll call on you. We would love to hear your comments. Um, and I think for the people who are listening uh, on Facebook Live, Noah explained how to be a part of it, but we really want to encourage people to uh, to be a part of the conversation. So uh, Rabbi Silber, whenever you are ready. Okay, I'll just begin with the introduction to uh, the recita recitation of keynote in general, um, which is a very long tradition. Uh, for the Ashkenazim, the primary uh, author of the keynote that we recite is that he has a career. It's not exactly clear when he lived, but I think the consensus seems to be around the seventh century. And I presume he didn't start it himself. So we have a, we have a, very long tradition of the recitation of keynote. And of course, Eicha itself is known in the Talmud as the book of keynote. So that's quite old. Uh, so we do have this tradition. Now, uh, we just want to say a few words about where we say keynote, etc. So first of all, the first thing that's interesting is that the common practice is to recite the book of Eicha at night. Uh, which is actually very striking because it's the only Megillah, apart from Esther, that we say at night. And even Megillah to Esther, fundamentally, the Mishnah doesn't know of saying Esther at night. The Mishnah knows only of saying, reading the Megillah in the day. The Gemara says that in addition to reading it in the daytime, which is found in the Mishnah, 
we read it also at night. You read it at night and then we repeat it in the day. And then the question is, what is the point of that? Why are we reading it at night? If primarily the mitzvah is to read it in the day. And it's possible to understand it that basically the reading it at night is a introduction to the reading in the day. The second time you read something, you're a deeper understanding of it. And perhaps the Talmud was very uh, concerned, important to that, that we really understand the Megillah given the fact that it's such a, such a special book in our, in our tradition. In any event, when it comes to Tisha B'Av, however, we read the Eicha only at night. In other words, everybody reads it at night. And I think the sense of that is to put us in the frame of mind. We begin Eicha with keynote, and it's a way of saying perhaps that the day of Tisha B'Av is a day of keynote. It's a day of mourning. And the way we mourn, basically, is through the recitation of a variety of texts, beginning with the biblical text of Eicha. And the reason for that perhaps is that since Tisha B'Av is a day of mourning, it's a day, it's a day of fasting and a day of mourning. And it's not a typical day of fasting because the days of fasting in the Mishnah are days that people accept upon themselves for whatever reason, individual reasons, perhaps there's a communal crisis, a war, a famine, lack of rain, or whatever. But Tisha B'Av is one of these days that is uh, set up rabbinically. And we are told that on this day, we are all mourners. And then the question becomes, what are we mourning? If one loses a relative, one understands what one is mourning. But what exactly is Tisha B'Av about? What is it that we're mourning? So the Book of Eich, I think, which we read at the very beginning, introduces the day of Tisha B'Av to us, it's setting up the day. The day of Tisha B'Av is a day of mourning. Much as I would say Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we begin Yom Kippur after we have the regular normal Mariv service, we've called out of it, which is prior to Yom Kippur. But the day of Yom Kippur, after we pray Mariv, then we say Slichot at night. And the idea is that the day of Yom Kippur is the day of forgiveness. It's the day of Slichot. So we, we, we're going to begin with Slichot. The Erev at Erev, we say. From, not, from uh, even tie to even tie. So Tisha B'Av is, in many ways, parallel to Yom Kippur in terms of the fast. And Tisha B'Av is a day of keynote, it's a day of mourning. And that raises the question, of course, what is it that we mourn? I think the keynote will help us, perhaps, or challenge us to understand what precisely we are mourning. So I do want to say a few words about the recitation of the keynote. So first of all, it's interesting that uh, we have typically all these years followed the Ashkenazic practice of the keynote, which we'll do as well this year, but we do have added a couple of Sephardic keynote. Let me just say a few words about that. The night of Tisha B'Av, actually, after we say, read the book of Eicha, we, um, we Ashkenazim, that is, say virtually no keynote at all. There's one keynote that's recited, which is essentially simply a repetition of the last chapter of Eicha, Zechor Hashem with additional oys, krechzes or whatever, but fundamentally it's a repeat of the last chapter of Eicha. Then on Motzei Shabbat, which happens, uh, you know, happened this year, Tisha B'Av falls on Sunday, as it often does, is a uh, kinah, 
which means Vihinoam Nishbat Pemotei Shabbat, that Vihinoam normally cited after Shabbat, the pleasantness of God should be upon us, Nishbat has ceased Pemotei Shabbat. That kina is Sephardic in, in, in origin. And in fact, the kinah that we say at night, we Ashkenazim say, if we say them at all, they're all Sephardic. Yehuda Levi, the Ibn Ezra, the Ashkenazim fundamentally, that is to say, don't say keynote at night. The Ashkenazim say keynote really in the daytime. And the idea behind that is that the Sephardim are different. They don't Mizrach have keynote at night. I'll get to that a little later, but the uh, perhaps the point of it is that fundamentally we enter into Tishaba, we're one might say overwhelmed by Tishaba. Tishaba is not mourning only the destruction of two temples. Tishaba is the day of mourning, the Jewish people's day of mourning, all mourners. And um, it's overwhelming, really, in the face of this suffering and grief that we encounter in our history. And the response initially is that of silence. In fact, one might even say that even in the normal case of mourning, when one is, is Menachem Avel, so the halach is you don't talk until the Avel speaks first. The idea of silence, the idea of sitting in silence is very important, I think, and is a appropriate response, one of the appropriate responses to, to tragedy. So that's the Ashkenazic, uh, path, I think, at night is fundamentally not to say keynote. We read the book of keynote because that's how the day is introduced. That's what defines the day. But, uh, but fundamentally, we are silent. The, um, the daytime is interesting. So we are reciting keynote in the daytime. So now the question is, when do we recite keynote? Of course, we're gathering together here. Um, so many of us have already prayed, uh, but we are saying the keynote af you know, after, after, after Shacharit is over, and we join together to come to discuss the keynote, to think about what we are reading, to think about the day, etc. In the actual Ashkenazic ritual, the keynote are recited after we read the Torah after the Torah reading. That's the Ashkenazic uh, ritual. Um, after the Torah reading and after the Haftorah, because Tishabov in the daytime, there's also a, uh, a, a Haftorah, Haftorah. So after the Haftorah, we are recite, we Ashkenazim recite keynote. Here I wanted just to um, mention what Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, said about the recitation of keynote after the Torah and Haftorah reading. Uh, the claim that he made actually, it's an interesting claim. The claim that he made is that the recitation of keynote in general requires what he called a, 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 a matir. There's something problematic about keynote because the keynote actually contain among other things, complaints. They call into question God's justice on several occasions. So he felt that this is part of a larger part of his thinking. I'm not gonna get into that now. It's not really the place to have a 
long conversation about his thinking in general when it comes to liturgy and prayer, etc. But the claim that he made was that we are relying upon others who come before us or sacred texts which give us the right to, to say keynotes, which include complaints. And he claimed there were two such texts. One is the book of Eicha. And it is certainly the case that in the book of Eicha, there are certain verses that call into questions God's justice. In particular, the verse in the second chapter of Eicha, Rei Hashem v'yabito v'mi olal kakom, im tochanon nashim priyom o'leti kuchim, im yehareg b'migdash Hashem kohen v'navi, look what you've done, whom are you harming? If, if women are eating their children, if priests and prophets are being murdered, is this what your intention is? This is your enemy? That's the verse in Eicha. So we, we say if Wolf Yirmiyahu, or whoever the author of Eicha may be, uh, was allowed to say this, and it's part of our sacred writings, this gives us the permission, one might say, to have our own keynote as well. And in the daytime, the verse that he cited, which I think is very interesting, is found not in the Torah reading, but in the Haftorah. Because in the Haftorah, towards the end of the Haftorah, Yermiel says, He says, call the wailing women and the wise women, let them come and let them lament. Which is actually very striking because it's clear that from Yermiel's perspective, it's the women specifically who are called to, to lament. I presume the reason is that they have a, perhaps a deeper connection to, to, uh, to a life, actually. A deeper connection to what it means to be a person, a human being, created being. And they're the ones that Yermiel says we should call if they have a deeper insight, perhaps, into what actually loss is all about. That's in the Haftorah, right towards the end of the Haftorah. And Rabbi Salvation suggested that it's that verse that sort of moves us into the next stage, which is our own keynote uh, written by others, other than uh, what is found in our Kitvei Kodesh, and we as a career, the whole range of people that wrote keynote, and up into this present day, there are still compositions and that the day of Tisha B'av sort of invites us or directs us uh, to write a keynote. You know, my own personal view is we don't need a matia, but that's a separate question. But I mean, certainly it is the case that the keynote are recited after the Torah reading, and that's very interesting. Just want to make a couple of other points about when we say the keynote. Because Tishabov, and this is one of the interesting things about Tishabov, Tishabov has with two separate hats, one might say. Tishabov has two separate uh, characteristics. One is it's a, it's a, it's a fast day. It's actually outside of Yom Kippur, the only real fast day that we have. Because the other fast days, we're only fasting from the morning until the evening. That's not really a fast day. A fast day is like Yom Kippur. You fast from evening to evening the whole day. Tisha B'Av is really the only, outside of Yom Kippur, the only real fast day that we have. That's one hat that it wears. And then it wears a different hat. It's a day of, it's a day of mourning. It's a, it's a day of Avelut. 
And those two aspects of Tisha B'av, and one of the interesting questions, and maybe we'll touch upon this later as well, is what is the relationship between these two different elements of Tisha B'av? The fasting on one hand, a fast day on one hand, and the morning on the other. And where they, where they might come into conflict is when it comes to prayer. Because when it comes to prayer, a fast day is all about prayer. We actually add additional prayers on fast days. We call them srichot. And on the fast days, typically, leaving Yom Kippur out of it, which is completely about srichot, but even on a regular minor fast, we are reciting srichot. And the srichot are recited typically right after the Amidah, right after the Shemona Esrei, in the place that we say Tachanun. Tachanun, Tachanunim Le'achat Filato is simply an extension of sorts of the Amidah. So the normal Srichot are recited right after the Amidah in the place that we normally say what's known as Tachanun, the Filata Payim. For those in the Sephardic community, they, they say every day, twice a day, Yud Gimel Bidot there as well. Shem Hashem Kerachum Bechan, which are Srichot. So that's what's normally recited. But on, on Tisha B'av, we don't say Tachanun on Tisha B'av. The practice is not to say Tachanun on Tisha B'av. And it's a very curious why we don't say Tachanun on Tisha B'av, but we don't say Tachanun on Tisha B'av. That's the current practice. So therefore, we're not going to say, we don't say the keynote where normally we would say Tachanun and Srikot. We delay it until after Kriyata Torah, and the Kriyata Torah is moving us to the recitation of, of, the, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the keynote. The, the reason we don't say uh, uh, Tachanun on Tisha B'av, the reason that's often given is that Tisha B'av is called a moe, it's called a festival. That is a reason that frankly, never made any sense to me. I can't fathom what that's actually about. Someday it may become a moe. We certainly hope that, and someday Tisha B'av will become a joyous day. But at present, it certainly is not a joyous day. So actually, the other interpretation, which is found in the Machzor Vitri, that's the sitter that is written by Rashi's pupils. And Rabbi Salavetchik liked this very much. He thought it's not about, it's not about being a happy day some, at some point in the future. It's about the limitation of prayer. Tachanun is essentially an extension of the Amida. But, on, but the mourner doesn't say Tachanun either. The mourner doesn't say Tachanun, not because it's a happy day, but because the mourner, mourning by definition, involves a, a limitation of prayer. In fact, even in the book of Echa, the book of Echa talks about the limitations of prayer, Satam Tfilati. So from that perspective, the mourner says less prayer, but the faster says more prayer. And then the question becomes, given if these two things are contradictory, if they contradict, then the question becomes, what do we choose to do? Or what has the Jewish community chosen to do? And I would say it's pretty clear that the Jewish community has chosen to see Tishima primarily as a day of mourning. Certainly the first half of the day is a day of mourning. We don't say Tachanun. We defer the keynote until after Kriyata Torah. Just wanted to conclude with simply an observation about saying keynote on the day of Tisha B'Av. 
the Sephardic, now again, there probably are more than one Sephardic rituals, but the one I'm familiar with, actually, um, and you can find it in Sephardia, they have the keynote of the Adult Mizrah, very interesting. And the Sephardic community that I'm familiar with says, recites keynote after, after, after the prayer service is over. And they begin it with Eicha. The Sephardim recite Eicha again, just as we read the Megillah twice. The Sephardim recite Eicha again. And clearly the recitation of Eicha in the daytime is simply part of keynote, that's for sure. They, and once they say Eicha, they say many different keynote. Uh, they don't say the keynote of Eliezer Kalir, who was from the ancient Israel, largely because, well, probably two reasons, but one is they don't need Kalir, they have their own great poets. We Ashkenazim rely on Kalir, uh, that's one reason. And they have Yud Alevi, the Ibn Ezra, and Ibn Gabiro, so they don't need Kalir, and many others, I would add. But it's interesting, so they have a different practice to say keynote, as we are doing now, to say it after the entire service is over. One last point about the keynote and about the placement of the keynote. The first keynote that we say in the daytime is by Eliezer Kalir. It begins with the word Shabbat. Shabbat surumeni shemuni ochrai. That's the first keynote that's recited. The Ashkenazim, the first about 20 keynote are by Eliezer Kalir. Um, so the question is, if you're familiar with the work of Kaliya, which is beyond belief complex in terms of structure and beyond belief difficult in terms of the various illusions that he has, Kaliya can't be just read because nobody will understand it. You have to actually study it. It's a cryptic, it's cryptic statements drawn from a variety of, of Midrashim. He may have made some of himself. He's beyond belief, prolific and ingenious. So Kawir actually, Shabbat Surumeni, the second word begins with the letter Samach. And the reason for that is that Kawir actually wrote keynote for many of the blessings inside the Amida. And he left off with the letter Nun. The blessing in the Amida of Bonei Yerushalayim, he has a keynote that focuses on the letter Nun. So when he starts the keynote afterwards, which is a continuation of the Amida for Kawir, he focuses on the letter Sama, which is the letter after Nun. And I was thinking that I wonder about Kalir. I wonder if, in fact, Eliezer Kalir, who lived many, many years ago, reflects a tradition that does say the keynote right after the Amida, where we would say Tachanun. Because it's simply, it seems to be simply a continuation of the, of the Amida. The same way Tachanun is a continuation of the Amida. On Tishabov, the um, keynote are a continuation of the Amita. And just one final interesting thing that I came across in terms of where we say these keynote. So I was looking at the Siddur of, of uh, Reb Sadiagon. Reb Sadiagon uh, has one of the, fir the first two oldest Siddurim that we have are the Siddur of Sadia and the Siddur of Amram Dal. Those are the two ancient Siddurim that we have. Asadia has all kinds of interesting things in the Siddur. It's not just a Siddur. It has all kinds of interesting pieces to it. And the, apparently the custom in those days 
was to say slichot, not after the Amidah, but to say slichot on the minor fast days inside the Shvon Esrei. And they said this slichot in the blessing of the Shvon Esrei, which begins with the words, slach lanu avinu ki chatanu, which makes, when you think about it, a lot of sense. The slichot of these gonim were essentially enhancements, enlargements, of the blessing in the Amida, which is the request for God to forgive us. So that's the blessing. And in that blessing, they would say, By the way, if you think about it, on Yom Kippur, when we say on Yom Kippur, for those that say in every service of Yom Kippur, some always say it. Uh, at night and in the Ewa, but in the Ewa, it is recited in the repetition of the Shvona Esrei inside the Shvona Esrei. And for those who say Srichot in the other services, it's said inside the Shvona Esrei. So saying the Srichot on minor fast days in the blessing of is fully consistent with our practice on Yom Kippur. But I want to say the following. Sadia, among other things, an amazing person, and he, um, he also composed, he composed his own, his, own, his own prayers. In addition to the standard prayers, which he puts together, he has many of his own compositions. So he writes in his sitter, here is the blessing of the Shmona Esrei, Slachranu Avinu Kichatanu. Here we say Slichot. And I'm going to compose 27 Slichot. 16 for the minor fast and 11 for Tisha B'av. So Sadri composes Slichot for Tisha B'av. It is clear that in Sadri's time, there was a recitation of Slichot on Tisha B'av, when of course, when you think about it, it makes 100% perfect sense. Slichot are recited on the fast days, and there's no greater fast day than the day of Tisha B'av. And if you think about Yom Kippur, it's all about Slichot. So we typically see slichot, and this is something to wait to think about. We see slichot and keynote as contradictory, as mutually exclusive. Apparently, Sadi did not see it that way. What he calls slichot seems to me, in looking at them, they can equally function as, uh, as a keynote as well. So the very same prayer for Sadia is a slicha and also is a keynote. So maybe we'll have an opportunity later to talk about keynote and slichot, and what is the difference between the kina and the slichot? Clearly, there is a difference. And the question is, what is the difference, and do we see them as mutually exclusive? Because our practice is not to say slichot. We don't say slichot. We don't say tachlun, don't say slichot. But apparently, Sadiqon didn't see it that way. And the keynote, as we call them, were recited inside the Amida, and Kalir, by the way, appends the keynote to the Amida as well. The keynote that we say, beginning with Shabbat, offer Kalir and a continuation of the Amida and the keynote inside the Amida. So I'll, I'll stop here at this brief introduction. Um, and if anybody has comments, questions, or just wants to reflect, that's as, uh, as Wendy said, this is what this is actually about. It's not about a shear. 
for coming together to reflect on this day. And our entry point into the day are these keynotes. Rabbi Silver, I was actually thinking about something that you said. Uh, you were saying before that you think the reason maybe why the Makona note are called, the female mourners are called in, is that maybe they're more kind of connected to life. I was wondering if you think that maybe it's also about um, it's sort of being more socially acceptable for these women to be crying and that it might be harder for the, the men in the society to kind of, you know, sort of be publicly emoting in that way. And I'm wondering if maybe the Mikona note kind of become the model because Tisha B'Av is the day where everybody is supposed to kind of lose their sense of reserve and be able to. Well, I think, I think it's an excellent point. I'd love to add, it's a very good point. Uh, the idea of Bechi. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, again, it's hard to know. I mean, we have plenty of examples in the Torah and in the Nevi'im of, 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 uh, of men crying. Uh, Joseph cries minimally on four different occasions. Uh, so, you know, Yaakov cries, Yosef cries. Uh, so it's, again, it might be to some extent cultural, but I think the point is, is, is well taken. I think that's uh, right, that they, as a model of, you know, as a model of not having the restraints we normally have, and I would say a kind of emotional restraints, maybe it's related to the other point of saying what, saying directed towards God, what we actually think, not having to, you know, to limit ourselves to what might be socially acceptable. Um, and in this sense, I think your point about not having the restraints strikes me that there's a parallel in some sense between Tishabov on one hand and Purim on the other. Not the poem of the rabbis, but the poem of the common people, of the folk, and the, the practices of Purim, basically, to Adlo Yada and to all kind of sort of the breaking down of order of, of, of Purim Torah, which is kind of mockery of Torah, as it were, and that under the guise of drunkenness or whatever, we allow ourselves a day where we really question pretty much everything. We question the system, we question the fairness of it, we question who's really running the world. And in that sense, I think Tisha B'Av is similar, I think, in that sense, that we allow ourselves, whether we need a matir or don't need a matir, but de facto, we allow ourselves, you know, with, with, with the appropriate restraints, because we also want to take responsibility, no, no doubt. It's one of the inner tensions in keynote, but so I think your point is, important and it's an interesting point as well. It almost, it almost seems like the word matir then could be used in kind of both senses, right? Both in terms of like permission, but also in terms of like an undoing of some sort, right? And like- Un Untying, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Rabbi Salvation was borrowing from the term in other contexts. He liked that term matir and he used it. I mean, it, it comes, to, comes to a deeper point about him, which I don't really think we should get into now, which is his view of religion in general. Submission for him was very central. At his core, he's a brisker. <laughs> the idea of you submit to God's will, that is central to him. Now, he also lived in the world and there's a humanistic side to Rabbi Soloveitchik, but at the core of it, it's about submission. His son-in-law, Rabbi Lichtenstein, was even more extreme in that respect, I would say, like two Rebbe's, but uh, 
So yeah, at the end of the day, Matthew and Omratir, and maybe the point is, I guess it's a good one. Uh, at the end of the day, it is an opportunity to, for us to think about the world in which we inhabit uh, and to think about various tragedies that have befallen the world and especially Jewish people. It's a day of Jewish people in mourning. Should we move on to the first Kinara Vesilber? Uh, okay, if no one else wants to speak up. I thank you for that comment. People should talk. It's not, you know, as we say, it's not a day of restraint. So we, uh, we shouldn't restrain ourselves. Um, okay, let me just uh, move to the first keynote. Is, this, is it on the screen or something? How is it? Um, I would just like to take a little short housekeeping break and remind people who are currently attendees when I invite you to be a panelist, that does not obligate you to do anything that just lets you into the room with the rest of us and then you can share your video or not and you can uh, unmute yourself when you wanna participate or not. So have that in mind. Uh, and also um, people who are reciting the keynote for us, uh, let me know when you're starting if you want me to put it up on the screen, uh, or if you would like to be in control, I'm fine with either. Okay, so the uh, kina that, um, kina, the first kina of Kawiya that we have, Shavat Suvumeni, uh, structurally, as I pointed out, it is, it's a continuation of what he wrote for the Amida. And what Kawiya does, some of these are incredibly complicated, but what Kawiya does is he chooses letters, he has, he frames it in a, in a way in which it relates to the, uh, to, to, to some other text. Often the book of Echa, six of his first, six of the first 20 begin with the word Echa, uh, hardly a coincidence. And um, so over here, for example, Shavat, the first word, Shavat, right there in the first word, that's taken as the first word of a set of verses that conclude the book of the book of Eicha. The, the verse in the book of Eicha is Shavat Mesos Ribeinu. The heart of our joy has ceased. Nepachli Evo Mecholeinu, our music has turned to, to a dirge. So the word Shavat is simply lifted from the last chapter and the next First word of the next stanza, Nafla, is the verse, Nafla Ateret Rosheinu, Oino Lanuki Chatanu, Al, is the first letter of the next verse, Alzeha Yodaveli Beinu. That's the first word. And then in the stanza itself, as you can see, it works with the different letters, and the, each first word of each of those next pieces is the first, uh, is, the, is, a, is a word. From the chapters, uh, from the chapters of Eicha, chapter four, chapter three, chapter two, two and chapter one, the four chapters of Eicha are written alphabetically. That is, the first chapter is in Aleph Bet, the second one is in Aleph Bet, the third is in Aleph Bet times three, and the fourth is in Aleph Bet. The fifth chapter of Eicha is not in is not in alphabetical order, but strangely or interestingly, there are twenty two verses, which is the number of the Hebrew alphabet. So here we have the structure of 
the structure of the uh, of Kaliya's um, the structure of Kaliya's uh, Kina is simply building upon the Book of Eicha, and each of these pieces would take us hours to go through this. I'm, I attended Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, discussion of keynote a couple of times in Boston. It's about eight hours long. He co covered about three keynotes, I think, usually three or four. And he would go through each word and talk about each word. Um, so we're not going to do that at all. But these are all references. Each of these is a kind of midrashic reference to, um, uh, to the Book of Eicha. For example, let's say we have the Nun over here. Let's say the Nun. I wait for the prophecy of Ben Barachio. That's the prophecy of consolation. It's, for now, it's hidden from us. That's a basic theme of Kaliyah in the Midrashim that, the, that the, the redemption is actually hidden. Let's leave that out for now. My eyes suffer from the Greek sophistry they translate. Leave that out. It's a reference to something to do with the, with the Greeks. Leave it out. There's also v'nicham v'yikra rabachia. V'nam al-eila anibokhia. This is actually a very important theme that runs through many of Kawir's piyutim. Asa, God did what God did. V'nicham. But then God repented of it. God regretted what God had done. V'yikra rabachia. And God called, for, called out for, for others to cry. V'nam. And God said, Concerning these things, I am crying. In other words, who is I am crying over here for Kavir? It could be calls out to others, and they should say, I cry. But here, certainly the translator sees it this way. I think it certainly is a strong possibility that God is also crying. God is crying too. The exile is, has to happen as a punishment, but God regrets having to do it. And that is a basic theme in Kawir's uh, keynote and other keynote as well. And it speaks to a different question about Jew Jews and Jewish history, which is that some have said that the suffering of the Jewish people means that God has abandoned the Jewish people. Their suffering is a punishment. God has deserted them and they are now disconnected from God to suffer forever. That's the, the interpretation of some. Someone in the church had that thinking that um, the suffering of the Jews and the banishment and the destruction is a sign that God has forsaken us. And the Midrashim, of course, don't accept that. And they don't accept that in, at all. And they don't accept it for a whole, in a variety of ways. First of all, uh, they speak about a, a, a future redemption which is hidden. The Redeemer has not come, but we believe the Redeemer will someday come, but no one knows when. It's another theme of Kaliya in many places. And when someone did have an insight, suddenly they weren't able to express it or they forget it at that moment and then it's forgotten. Jacob had gathered all his children, his sons, to tell them about the future redemption. He never tells them. So that's one idea, that there is a future redemption. 
there will be redemption. We believe in redemption, but we don't know when it's going to happen. That's one thing. But here you have the idea that God is also crying. It was necessary. Sometimes we do things that are necessary, but we cry that we have to do them. And then we have another theme that runs through Kawiya's keynote and other keynotes as well. We could call it Shrinto Begoruta, that God is also in exile. This appears in many places. It appears in the Hoshana, we say on during this holiday of Sukkot and Hoshana Rabbah, that God is also in exile. God, God goes into exile with us. God is with us in exile. That's another theme of the keynote. So here we have this, uh, within these few words, one of these uh, approaches, which is a response, as it were, to a question, whether, it doesn't matter who asked the question, it's a good question, you know, uh, what does this say about the Jewish people? What do these destruction of the temple, separation from God, exile, suffering, which, 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 which has gone on uh, for a couple of thousand years, uh, what does this say about our standing with God? So the keynote are an attempt to, to wrestle with this, to deal with it, to respond to it, etc. Again, each of these stanzas, there's so much to say because each one is a reference to, let me make one more comment about this Kina and then we'll recite it together. Uh, I'll take this to the next stanza, Al. The, Al, the word Al, of course, is from the last chapter of Eicha. Hartzion Sheshomeim Shualim Hilfubo. And then we have Al Pnei Parat Nuktu Chasidera. Pauge Suv Zachra Piyaru Yisodera. So here's interesting, and we'll come to this later, I'm sure, in the other keynote. When the destruction took place, when the, um, when the temple was destroyed, there were those who remembered Yamsuf, Pauge Suf, who remembered the crossing of the sea. We'll get to this later on. Some of the keynotes draw connections between the crossing of the sea, the weaving Egypt on one hand, and the destruction of the temple on the other. I'll leave that for others. Then we have the next, I wanted to speak about just the next few words. Pachad chet shilo tokaf sodera. The fear, they trace it, the fear of the sin of shilo brought forth confession. I'm not sure that's exactly the right translation. But the point is, what Kalir is getting at is that the, the, we, on Tisha B'Av, we mourn the destruction of, of the temple. But before there was a temple in Jerusalem, there was another temple, which, they, with, which our tradition said lasted for 369 years. That's the temple of, of Shiloh, whose destruction is described in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. The death of Ewi's sons, the death of Ewi, the banishment of the ark. And in the book of Yirmiyahu, Yirmiyahu walks into the temple and he tells, he makes a big pronouncement, which almost gets him killed. He says, you people think it can't happen. You people think it can't happen. Temple's here forever. But let me tell you something, it can happen. And I cite as proof the story of Shiloh. Shiloh lasted for 369 years. Shiloh was an institution. And no doubt the people who went to Shiloh believed it will always be there. 
That's what people often think. What's here today will always be here. And Yermio walks into the Beit HaMikdash and announces to the public, don't think that way. Because the same way Shiloh was impermanent, nothing is permanent because it depends on our behavior. Pachad chet Shiloh, the sin of Shiloh. Shiloh is a place of sinful behavior. And that results in the destruction of Shiloh. And Yermiel is almost killed. We have to remember that these prophets, Yermiel was almost killed on more than one occasion. According to our tradition, Yeshayahu Hanavi, the author of the prophecy we read Shabbat before Tisha B'av, Shabbat Chazon, was in fact killed. It's a dangerous profession because you speak truth to power. And the people in power often don't want to hear the truth. So Kaweer reminds us here in this little phrase, Pachad Chechigo Tokab Sodera, he reminds us we enter into Tishabav and we reflect upon the tragedies of the past. But I think what Kaweer is getting at is not that we should be paranoid necessarily, but that we have to understand, don't think that what's here today will always be here. That's not our history. And we don't have reason to believe that. No good reason in any event. So I think that's something to think about on Tisha B'Av as well, as we reflect upon the past and on the loss. But of course, that will get us to think in so many ways about the present, which is one of the themes of Tisha B'Av, and that's the idea of a fast day. Get to that later. Uh, I'll stop with this. I mean, there's so much to say about each line here, uh, but I think I'll stop at this point. Someone else wants to respond or say something. So I'm gonna hand everything over to you, uh, Wendy. You... Okay, so Noah, can we have the, the first Kina on screen so people can recite it together and then we'll move on to the next one. Yeah. Okay. So we'll just say it together, I guess. Thank you.
Okay, um, so before we move on to the second kina in our package, um, the kina is actually based on a midrash from the opening of Echaraba. So I'm going to uh, hopefully share my screen so we can see part of the midrash, uh, and then we can think about how the kina kind of changes it. So um, this is a part of a, a very uh, famous, really interesting midrash in the Petichta, which is the opening section of Echa Raba. Echa Raba is the midrash on, uh, on the book of Echa. And um, as part of this midrash, there's a description of how uh, Yirmiyahu the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet, 
um, is sent to go and wake up all of our ancestors from their graves so that they can go and pray for their descendants, for the people of Israel who are heading into exile. And um, the Midrash describes Yirmiyahu going and waking up Abraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and waking up Moshe and they all come before God and they all begin to plead uh, with God to uh, to to save the people of Israel and each one of them reminds God of all of the different wonderful things that they did and and in the merit of their actions um, the people of Israel should be saved and so Abraham reminds God of the ten trials that he withstood Yitzchak reminds God of the fact that he was willing to allow himself to be sacrificed during Akedat Yitzchak. Uh, Yaakov reminds God about all of the troubles he had raising his 12 sons and his one daughter. Um, uh, Moshe reminds God about all of the travails in the wilderness and how loyal of a shepherd he was. Um, and in the Midrash, God actually doesn't respond to any of them, right? Each one, one after the other, comes forward and God doesn't say anything to them. Um, and then the Midrash kind of moves into this part, which is over here on our document. We're told, uh, so at this exact moment, Rachel, our matriarch, jumped before God. I always actually really like that image of her jumping with great alacrity. So she sort of jumps forward and she makes the following argument, um, which is a little different than all of the other ancestors. All the other ancestors basically have said, uh, you know, I did such wonderful things in the merit of that. Please have mercy on my descendants. Rachel is going to say something slightly different. She says to God, she says, God, you know that Yaakov, your servant, loved me with kind of this exceeding excessive love. And he worked on my account for my father for seven years in order to be able to marry me. And when those seven years were coming to a close, and it was time for me to get married to my husband, my father planned to switch me and my sister so that my husband would marry my sister. And Rachel says, this was very difficult for me because I knew about the plan. Now this to begin with is very interesting because when you when we read about this in Sefer Breshit, there's no sense that Rachel knows that anything is going on. But here in the Midrash, Rachel says, I knew exactly what was about to happen. It was very difficult for me because I had also been waiting for seven years to marry Yaakov. And I didn't want to just let this deceit happen. So what did I do? Hodati Bali. So I told Yaakov, and she already calls him Bali, right? Even though at this moment, she's not yet actually married to him. She already calls him her husband. I already, I let my husband know that this plan was afoot. And I gave him a sign. So that way he would know the difference between me and my sister. So that way my father would uh, would not be able to accomplish this this switch and she says but after i did this i regretted it and i i was able to kind of swallow my desire i had mercy on my sister that she not be humiliated and so on our wedding night they switched my sister for me and I actually gave my sister all of those signs that I had given my husband because I wanted him to think that my sister was me. I wanted him to think that my sister was really Rachel. 
says, not only did I give her all these special signs, I actually went into their room and I lay underneath their bed in which he was lying with my sister. As he would whisper to her, she would be silent. And I would respond to him. Right? So even though I'd been waiting seven years to marry my husband, I was willing to not only have my sister take my place, but I was with them that night. I was lying under their bed, responding to my husband, just so he wouldn't know, recognize that it wasn't my sister's voice. And Rachel now turns to God and she says, look, I did this act of kindness for my sister. I wasn't jealous of her. I didn't allow her to be humiliated. And now Rachel says to God, Look, I'm just flesh and blood. I'm just dust and ashes. But I was still able to not be jealous of this rival. I didn't allow her to be embarrassed or humiliated. And Rachel says to God, You, God, you are a living, eternal God. You are merciful. Why are you jealous of idolatry? We know that the idols are, are really nothing. Right? She says, look, my sister was a real rival to me. She's a flesh and blood human being, just like I am. But I was able to swallow my jealousy, um, in order to have her not be embarrassed. And so you, God, why, why can't you swallow your jealousy of idolatry? And idolatry isn't even a real rival for you, God, right? Idolatry, we know that it's Ein Bamamash. Why are you so angry at my descendants? If I was able to kind of hold back my emotions and act in order to uh, to do something that I thought was a good thing to do, you, God, you should be able to do that as well. And so why did you not do that? Why are you so jealous of these idols that the people have been worshiping? So much so that you've exiled my descendants. They've been killed with a sword. And the enemies have done with them exactly whatever they wanted. Um, and this is the argument that she makes to God, right? She basically says, um, if I was able to do this, God, then you should also be able to do this. And we're told, Immediately, God's mercy is aroused, and God says to Rachel, For your sake, uh, Rachel, I will bring Israel back to their place. As the verse in Yirmiyah says, So as the verse in chapter 31 of Yirmiyah says, a voice is heard on high, it's Rachel crying bitterly for her children because they are not there. And then God responds in Yirmiyah, um, Stop up your voice from crying and your eyes from tearing, because there is a reward for your actions. And I think in the Midrash over here, it's your actions, both in terms of this argument that you've made right now, and also your action in the past, your act of kindness for your sister Leah. Uh, and there'll be hope in the future, uh, and God promises Rachel that the, uh, her, her descendants will return uh, to their land. So, uh, a couple of things I think are very interesting about this mitrash, right? There's a sense that all of the ancestors are aware of what's happening 
uh, to their descendants. They all, uh, you know, they're they're awoken by by Yirmiyahu. They're all in mourning for kind of what will what will happen in the future, um, which is actually kind of interesting, right? Because if you think about um, when Avram is told in Brit Ben Habitarim that his descendants will be slaves, we don't we don't kind of hear him responding with mourning, even if he might have felt that way. But here the midrash makes it very explicit that these descendants are uh, sorry, the ancestors are are heartbroken. Uh, about what is happening to their descendants. Um, they're each trying to get God to have mercy, um, mostly for the, the Avot, right? For Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Moshe, it's about reminding God of their great merits in the hopes that that will be helpful to their descendants. And Rachel takes a slightly different tack, right? She doesn't say, remember God, how great I was, how, you know, my merit in being kind to my sister and in the merit of that, be kind to my children. Instead, she kind of challenges God and says, um, uh, remember what I did and how, if I was able to do this, God, you you can also be able to do this. And it seems like this is, uh, for God, this is a winning argument, right? And it seems like God has been waiting for the kind of argument that will allow God to be merciful. I guess maybe Rachel is almost the matir for God in the Midrash, right? As soon as God hears his argument, we're told immediately he responds and, and says that the, the descendants will be, will be redeemed. Um, uh, okay, so I'm gonna now, share Noah's excellent um, screen-friendly keynote because I want to uh, just kind of point out some things about how the kina changes the midrash. So if you remember in the midrash, the ancestors, the male ancestors make their arguments about uh, their their merit and uh, God doesn't respond to them at all. And then Rachel makes her argument where she kind of challenges God to be as uh, as able to swallow God's jealousy as she was able to swallow hers. And that is the winning argument. The Midrash, um, sorry, the Kina though, because it's written for, uh, for Tisha B'Av, which is a day primarily of mourning the Kina kind of reworks the story of the Midrash slightly differently. So if we look over here at Kina number two, it begins with um, right? when Yermiyahu was walking along the uh, by the graves of the ancestors and he says to them, uh, uh, beloved bones, why are you just lying here? Your your uh, right? Your children uh, are in exile. Their homes are destroyed, um, and so now all of the avot wake up and they begin to cry and they call out to God. Um, uh, but here, for example, if we look at their individual arguments, right? So with the Zion line is Zaak Av Hamon, right? Av Hamon is Avraham, the Av Hamon Goim. So uh, Avraham cries out on behalf of his children, Chinein Pnei El Ram, he uh, supplicates God. And he says, mm-hmm. was it for nothing that I withstood these 10 trials? Um, and now I have to see the brokenness of my descendants. And where is the promise that you made me, God, uh, of don't fear Abraham? Um, but in the Kina, right, so in the Midrash, um, God uh, doesn't respond to Avram at all. In the Kina, God does respond to Avram. And what God says is, it's true that, um, um, oh, sorry, one second. It's moving pretty fast here. Um, it's true that, um, it's true that I, um, uh, it's true that I withstood these 10 trials, but actually uh, your descendants 
right? Your descendants have um have have sinned by worshiping idols. And how God says, how can I hold back when they have violated all 10 commandments? So it's true, Abraham, that you've you withstood 10 trials, but your descendants kind of countered that by breaking all 10 commandments. And so therefore, you know, almost it's almost like there's an equation. And in the equation, like the sins outweigh the merits. And so I can't have mercy. And the same thing goes on with Yitzchak and Yaakov and Moshe. Each one will kind of speak about their merits. And in the Kinah, God responds to each one of them and says, Mm, it's true that you, you had all this merit, but actually the the sins of your descendants are even greater. And so in the scale, kind of weighing out the relative merits and um and uh and uh crimes or transgressions, the transgressions kind of are heavier. And so therefore your merits will not help them. Um so now if we can just sort of scan down to the bottom of the the kina right now. So uh, let's go a little further. Um Okay, great. This is a great place to stop. So, um, so, uh, so, uh, right before, so, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Moshe all come forward with their arguments. God rebuts all of them by saying that the people have uh, sinned even more. Um, and now suddenly we see that we're told, Leah comes forward crying and like beating her heart. Rachel, Leah's sister, is crying for her descendants. Zilpa Zilpa is kind of hitting her face in, in mourning. Bilha is kind of mourning with her two hands. So um, I think this is an interesting moment in the Kina, because instead of Rachel coming forward with an especially good challenging argument uh, that wins that wins and allows God to have mercy on, on, on Israel, in the Kina, it's really about all four mothers, Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah, um, all four of the, the mothers of the children of, of Yaakov. Um, uh, they come forward and they actually don't argue at all. They just cry. They just kind of express their mourning uh, in various kind of physical ways. Um, and in the Kina, that's actually what sways God. We're told he, that God now says, right, Return uh, pure ones to your eternal rest. I will fulfill what you've asked of me. God says, I will, I will be sure to, to bring your descendants back out of exile. Um, and I think that this sort of shift between Rachel kind of saving the day in the Midrash with the best kind of argument uh, to hear with all four women kind of getting God to say that God will redeem the people, not really because they're putting forward any argument at all, just because of their, their great sorrow and their mourning. And I think this is kind of the shift uh, kind of into the day of Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av and the keynote is not really going to be about making the most clever or the best argument before God. It's really going to be about kind of expressing this this pure emotion and this pure sorrow. And so for the kina, for the poet of the kina, the poet imagines kind of what, you know, the aspect that will most sway God is this expression of, of mourning and sorrow. And I think by reciting the kina, we are kind of living out what the poet is hoping for, right? We, we also are expressing this sorrow and hoping that our sorrow will um, will be able to persuade God um, to uh, to have mercy on us as well. So Noah, let's maybe go back up to the start of Kina number two, and then we can uh, we can recite it together. Uh, although I guess maybe let's pause for a second. If anybody has any thoughts about the midrash or the Kina before we start reciting it.
I had a thought about it. Great. Just briefly, that it's, a, I think for, for career, it's the fact that all four women who are actually competitors with each other, Rachel, Leah, all of them in competition, but they, they put that aside for a shared purpose. I think that maybe one of the lessons of Tishabov that we all have to learn is that um, we have to be able to put our divisions apart if we, to, if we, to come together around certain issues which have to do with tragedies that affect the Jewish people collectively, probably other issues as well. And maybe what God is responding to is the fact that they actually are able to overcome their own, it's similar to what the other point, she's able to overcome her, her competitive nature, jealousy or whatever it is, and to put that aside and to come together, in this case, all four of Imahot coming together for, for mutual purpose. Thank you. Um, uh, Elizabeth Brown, it looks like maybe you have a comment, please. Yes, thank you. Um, I actually like Rabbi Silver's comment a lot better than mine because he's kind of zooming out and looking at it more metaphorically. I'm thinking about myself as a woman and lying under the bed that's supposed to be my wedding night and there's another woman with my bali. <laughs> it's like, how on earth? I, it, I mean, talk about overcoming jealousy. I mean, you're talking about just the most profound physical uh, sense of attachment. And of course, in the days of the Avot, you know, they were polygamous and, you know, so it was sort of expected that a woman wasn't going to have her husband to herself, unlike today. Now we do expect that. But I just find that staggering, uh, the idea that she could have done that. And I wonder, is this Midrash written by a man or Midrash written by a woman? <laughs> it's just yeah, I mean, I think it's meant to be staggering, right? Yeah. I think she says Velood, right? Not only that, right? She's really ratcheting it up, right? She's saying basically, I did this thing that you wouldn't think it was possible for a person to do. Um, and it's one thing, right? If you're a woman living in a polygamous society and you don't really have much of a choice about things, but she's saying, no, I had a choice, right? I could have made it clear to my husband that it was my sister and not me. I could have prevented this from happening. And I deliberately kind of acted not to do that. I, at first I was going to, at first I gave my husband these signs and then I didn't want my sister to be humiliated and I was, I was, you know, willing to do this and I was very active about it, right? I was there under the bed making sure. Now, I mean, I think the other part of the Midrash that I always find kind of interesting is that even though it's a great act of kindness to Leah, it's actually kind of a terrible thing to do to Yaakov, right? Who's yeah. been trusting her, right? And so there's kind of this other side of that betrayal that is interesting that the, I would say the Midrash isn't focusing on that aspect of the story, yeah. but I think it's really interesting also. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine had I ever done anything like that. I mean, I, that never would have happened, but I can't even imagine pulling the wool over my husband's eyes in such a drastic way. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a profound betrayal, right? And yeah, yeah. Um, okay, any other thoughts about this Midrash? Wendy? Oh yeah, please, Ruth. So I, you know, I see Khalir pushing back against that, against the Midrash in the way he structures his, his kina. He follows the Midrash where the avot, the men, are touting the things that they did. And then God has to say, yeah, yeah, but that was not enough. But when it comes to the women, 
Not only does he include Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah, which nobody does, and especially the, the Midrashist does not, but he, there's nothing, there's no speech from the women. It's only their crying, and it's the crying that gets God to respond because the avod, the men are giving their terutzim and their, you know, their stuff, and the women don't. And not like in the Midrash where, you know, Rachel talks back to God. Here, there's no back talking, and all the women are equal. And Leah, too, has a lot to cry about. But each one of them, I think, so yeah, so on, on that sense, it's the crying, that, that uh, visceral cry that breaks through to God, which we see all through Jewish history. It's the crying out, which gets us out of Egypt or starts the ball rolling. And I see that same thing here. And just a little side note, Leah's crying has always been there. She's been crying all through the marriage, all through the marriage. And, you know, and Rachel, with, you know, with all the, the, the gauzy, fluffy stuff that the uh, Midrashist puts on Rachel's, uh, all of her sacrifice, she, and swallowing her kina, but as the story progresses in, 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 the, in Bereshit, she's quite jealous, and she's, and she's quite vicious. And so, you know, I, I have to, you know, I have to take the Midrash with a lot of, lot of, like maybe a giant glass of whiskey, but um, the, I still, I still just like the idea that, that Khalir is just pushing back against that and bringing all of the women in and accentuating it's the crying, which gets, which gets through when, when argument is, is futile, the crying is what works. Yeah, so Ruth, I, I loved the things that you just said. One of the things that, that, that I think is really interesting about it also is that um, I think even though you're right that throughout Sefer Breshit, there's quite a lot of animosity and jealousy between Rachel and Leah, I think maybe one point that Midrash is making is that like it's possible to have an act of great generosity and then afterwards have other things happen, right? Like it's almost like later on these other things happen, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't possible in this one moment for her to have this, this act of generosity. Um, and there's a sense, I think even within the story itself, like at first she wasn't going to do it, right? She was more important to her to be married to her husband. And then she says like, afterwards I regretted that. And it could be like a momentary regret. It could be that by the next morning, she already thought it was terrible to have done this. But I think the Midrash is kind of celebrating the possibility of this, this moment of, of, um, of, uh, of, of generosity and like kind of wants to highlight that. Um, the one thing I would say though, and Rabbi Silver, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know that this kina was written by Khalir. It doesn't sound like Khalir to me. It's attributed to Khalir. That's a very good question. I don't know myself. It is attributed to him. It still doesn't sound like him, but who knows? Just because it's too easy to understand, right? You read right. it in words. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that could just be also that he has different. Um, uh, okay, great. I see that Shoshana, you have a comment to add also? At me? Yeah, please. <laughs> um, Yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, I um, I heard a, an interpretation on that um, the the part of the midrash that involves being under the bed um, by um, Rebitz and Racheli Talbis a couple of years ago that I thought was really interesting and kind of um, made me think about it in a different way, which was um, interpreting that in a in a metaphorical way of just the concept of giving your voice to somebody else, and. Um, the fact that, you know, there, 
there are situations where, I mean, the way that I understood that anyway, is that, you know, we find ourselves in situations where we have more power than other people and it can be really tempting and comfortable to kind of just like stay where we are and take advantage of the advantages that we have and um, that it, you know, it, it's, it takes an extra effort and sort of overcoming that sense of, of comfort or, or kind of complacency to, to, to like donate as it were your voice or to give up some of the power that you have to someone who doesn't have a voice. Um, and, you know, not just, not just giving from what you have, but being willing to have less in order to give to someone who doesn't have. Got it. So. Really interesting reading of it. Thank you. That is yeah. great. Um, uh, Martha, it looks like maybe you have something to share also. Yes, yeah, so listening to this, I'm I'm thinking about the contrast that Rabbi Silver made between fasting and mourning, and the fact that mourning is associated with less prayer or we might say less speech, and the effectiveness of the four mothers not arguing with God, not speaking, but giving voice to in another way yeah very powerful and relates to the women crying that we spoke about at the very beginning of the first kina yeah i think that that's a great point i mean one of the things that's very interesting for people who've studied the midrashim and echaraba um they're often kind of described as sort of protest midrashim right the the book of echa itself is is a book of sort of mourning and of saying that you know we've sinned and that's why this has happened whereas the midrashim and echaraba often kind of end with like challenges to god right many of them basically are asking god like was this really necessary did you really need to do this wasn't there so um so i think you're right that there's a way in which the keynote kind of um, adopt a different stance, right? In the keynote, it's not really about challenging God. It's really about kind of crying out more often um, and hoping that, that that will kind of cause God to, uh, to, to have mercy on, on the people. Um, uh, Rabbi Silber, I actually remember many years ago, you had a slightly different perspective on Rachel under the bed. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm remembering you saying that you thought that maybe one of the points Rachel was making was, even though Leah was in bed with Yaakov, like it was, well, why don't you say it? It was your point. You, don't wanna... you know, I was thinking about that now, but uh, I, I guess the point, I didn't want to really get into, I mean, we're running short on time here and I want to make sure everybody has a chance to, uh, mm -hmm. to present. But uh, the point that I made was, I think, and you probably remember better than me, was that, her argument to God is the people, God says they're worshiping idols. And my, the, the claim that I made at that point, which I don't know if it's right or, or wrong, was that her point is that they may be worshiping idols, but they're really, they're, they're really searching for you. And that you could be talking to one person, but in reality, you're really fundamentally looking for something else. So something along those lines. He's really, he thinks he's talking to, to Rachel. He's really, he's, talk, he's talking to Leah. But he's actually talking to Rachel. I mean, that's he thinks the person with him is Rachel. It's not Rachel. The same way the claim could be that people often search for other things, they're really searching for God, but they don't know where to find God. And they're looking for God in all kinds of places. So even though what they encounter is not God-like at all, but actually what their real intention is is to they perhaps think so, they believe so. They believe that they're encountering something real, and even though they're mistaken. That's what I, somebody all knows lines, but I wouldn't, you know, again, so it's a long time ago. Great. 
Um, and I see that uh, Donna asked a question over here. So we, this was the midrash that was the precursor to the second kina in the packet. And uh, uh, Noah, if we can share the packet again, maybe we'll recite the second kina together now. אז בלו חירמיהו על קברי אבות ונם עצמות חביבות, מה אתם שוחות מניכם גלו ובתיהם חריבות, ויהי זכות אבות בארץ תרבות, קראו כולם בקינים על חסרון בנים, דובבו בכל תחנונים פני שוכן מעונים, ויהי הבטחת וזכרתי להם ברית ראשונים, הם ימירו כבודי בתור ולא פחדו ולא ראו, ועלים עיניים מהם ולא נעו ולא שעו, ואיך הדבר קרמי ועצבו. זעק אב המון בעבורם, וכינן פני ארם, חינם נושאתי עשר בחינות עולם, והן חזיתי שבעם, והיה הבטחת אותי בעבורם. תגו להיזהרות בעבודות זרות, יעצו לחצוב, אורות פרות נשברות, ואיך אטפק על ביטול עשרת הלבעות. כבוד צבח יצחק בני שוכן שחק, ושב פי טבח וחק בן לרי נשחק ונמחק, ויבטחת את בריתיה כמעט יצחק. מרו בירמיה וטימאו הר המוריה, נילאתי נסוג היה עולה לי מנשייה, ואיך אטפק בהרגת זכריה. סך ילד יולוד בטלת דמעות קטנים זולף, אמרתי שטיפחתי באלף איך כזו ממני בחרף. ואיך אפר מני דמים מדמים כמה עלף. בצרו הנאמן כחוש באפר המדומן, צאן אשר בחקי האמן ואיך כזו בו זמן, ואי הבטחת כי לא אמן. כל בכי ליה מתופפת על לבבה, ואחר החלטה מבכה אמנה, זלפה מכה פניה, ברכה מקוננת בשתי ידיה. שובו תמימים למנוחתכם, מלא מלא כל משאלותיכם, שולחתי מבלה למענכם, הנני משובב גלות ביניכם. אוקיי, אז אני חושב שאולי בזמן הזה, Let's, for the time being, we'll skip Kina number three, and if we have time to come back to it, we'll come back to it. But um, Chaya, are you available to introduce Kina number four for us now? Hi. Um, no, if you don't mind sharing it, um, that would be great. Thank you. Um, sorry. Give me a second to collect myself. Um, so the fourth... Kina is called that is a quote from Dibrahim. Um, and it describes, oh, well, it doesn't describe, it just says that uh, the prophet was mourning Yoshiahu the king. Um, so I just want to sort of give a little bit of context for this Kina. Um, so, as, right, it's an elegy. It is a recreation of the elegy that we're told Yirmiyahu, um sort of said about Yoshiahu. Um, Dibriam doesn't say what Yirmiyahu said. Uh, traditionally, um, the Midrash says that it's the fourth parak of Eicha, um, but um, Rabbi Lazar HaKalir is um, sort of recreating an imagined elegy. Um, and, but he does reference the fourth parak of Eicha because every line of the, um, of the Kinah starts with the first word of the, the corresponding pasuk in the fourth parak of Eicha. Um, so who was Yoshiyahu? Um, well, the 
ספר מלכים שאומר, וכמוהו לא היה לפניו מלך אשר שב אל השם בכל לבבו ובכל נפשו ובכל מאודו ככל תורת משה ואחריו לא קם כמוהו. There had never been a king before him who returned to God with his entire heart and his whole soul um, and all of his strength, um, like the Torah of Moshe. And also afterward, there was never one like him. So he's considered the number one righteous king of, um, of Malchut Beit David. Um, now this um, refer is referenced in the second stanza um, where it says, um, sorry, Avigdor is the name of Moshe. Um, and this is a reference to this Pasuk about him having been the most righteous king since Moshe. And also the, there was never one as righteous after him. Um, so the Tanakh describes, sorry, um, describes how um, Yoshiahu was doing uh, sort of repairs in the Bain of Dash and he found a Sefer Torah. Um, and whatever it said in it, made him very afraid. He tore his clothes. I believe he cried. Um, and he starts this religious reform throughout all of um, his kingdom, um, getting rid of all of the forms of idolatry and different forms of sinning that were going on in the country, um, which is sort of what we've been waiting this entire time for a king to do because it's been a perennial problem that there's a Buddhist era going on, whether um, the king is neglecting it or actually encouraging it. Um, so Yoshiyahu is finally the king that we've all wanted, which um, arguably like the first king who sort of gives us a glimmer of hope that kingship is not a failed experiment entirely um, because he's actually doing the thing that it seems like maybe kings are supposed to be doing, um, which is trying to, um, trying to sort of corral the people into serving God properly, um, which might be one of the reasons that according to the Midrash, the Pasuk that he was thinking of, so not the Pasuk, according to the Midrash, the Pasuk he found the Torah open to um, was, um, uh, sorry, whoa, I, my notes have gotten a little confused, sorry. Um, so God will bring you and your king. So Yoshiha was taking this very personally to a nation that you have not, you and your parents have not known, and there you will serve uh, foreign gods. Um, so let me address that this is the passage that he saw that really terrified him, but also that he was thinking of a different pasuk in Tvarim where it says, Ashur, Arur Ashur lo yakim et divrei ha-Torah hazot, la-sototam, la-sototam. Um, sorry. Um, so, cursed be the one who does not establish the words of this Torah um, to do them, which uh, can be interpreted as like a leader who needs to establish them sort of on a national level. So he is actually finally doing the thing that we want kings to be doing. But um, it seems as though, in a certain way, it's too late. You know, kingship already is a failed experiment. The um, Yirmiyahu ref um, references his grandfather, Menashe, who was considered like the worst king of Yehuda. And his sin is so terrible that one way of reading this sort of situation is that Menashe has sort of messed up badly enough that like it's irreparable, um, which is one idea that I'm going to come back to. Um, and sorry, I'm going to just continue the context and then I'm going to talk about those ideas. Um, now, Yoshiahu right, institutes this huge religious reform, which we're going to, again, I'm going to come back to that 
it's a little unclear how successful it really was. Um, and then his death is in the context. Um, I'm just, I'm gonna go through this very quickly because it's referenced in the Kina, um, that um, Paro Necho, who was the king of Egypt, um, and is not at this point sort of um, uh, an antagonist to the kingdom of Judah, um, asks Yoshiahu to allow him to pass through his land um, in order to fight another enemy. He's not attacking, he just wants to pass through. And um, Yoshiahu says no, for reasons that the Midrash fills in. Um, and Paranacho says, if you don't cooperate with me, then I'll fight you instead. Um, he doesn't cooperate, he does. Um, and, and the Egyptian army comes in and does attack the, kingdom, um, the Judean kingdom. Um, and Yoshiahu is personally targeted and killed. Um, so Yermiahu is now mourning the death of this one righteous king. Um, which we can read in a few different ways. Um, one way, uh, I think, is sort of taking the death of an individual can sort of personalize a tragedy in a certain way. Um, and so in one way might just be like, yes, Yuriahu is mourning this one individual, and we're supposed to sort of use that to personalize the like national collective suffering and pain. Um, another way of understanding it is that um, sorry, <laughs> um, that Yoshiahu, because he was this righteous, very righteous king, exceptionally righteous king, um, as long as he was alive, there was some hope that he would turn back the tide of the destruction. Um, and his death actually, rather than sort of personalizing the collective tragedy, is a collective tragedy because if, if he's dead, it means that there's really no hope. Um, if he couldn't fix things, no one can. So when, when he dies, Yoshiahu is mourning the fact that there, there will be no coming back. Um, the tragedy is definitely final. Um, sorry, give me a moment. Um, and I wanna sort of talk about the ways that um, Yoshiao is sort of a, a paradigm of different kinds of sort of psychological suffering is how I'm going to frame it. Um, so that's gonna bring me back to why why wasn't what Yoshiahu's reform enough? Um, and there's two ways of looking at it. As I mentioned, one possibility um, is that um, is that Menashe had just irreparably ruined things, um, which is sort of perturbing. But I think, as was mentioned earlier, I, I don't want to go deeply into sort of the questions and theology here. I think Robbie Rafe is actually going to talk later on about the. Um, suffering of the innocent, but I don't want to talk so much about the ideas, and I think I want to talk sort of more about the feelings, which I think is what the keynote are about. Um, so one possibility, according to the Midrashim, and this is, the Kina actually sort of takes this tack, is that he thought that his reform was success, successful, but it wasn't in fact. Um, people were outwardly um, reforming their behavior, but privately, and this is where uh, the the Kina reference the late Nehador, sorry, let me find it. Uh, yeah, in the third, the second stanza, actually, these um, sort of like unserious people or, or mockers were publicly reforming themselves, but secretly actually still um, worshiping a Bodhisattva. It says, Asher Kamu Achar Hadelatli Store, which um, the Midrash says that they sort of put idols on, on the backs of their doors so that when they opened inwards, the, the Bodhisattva was hidden. Um, or alternate, like you, you could also just read it as like 
behind closed doors, they were still sinning. Um, that's one possibility. And that sort of is a convenient way of getting out of the discomfort of, of this, this really um, gut-wrenching feeling that I think Yoshiyahu's death brings up of like, this was a good guy, why is he suffering? Why? Um, so one way is to say, oh, he wasn't actually <laughs> um, successful in his reform, um, which I think makes you think about the, um, the bind that a king is in and that he is responsible for the people but can't actually control them. Um, so he's doing his best to, to bring about this reform and it's unsuccessful and that, and he, so that um, in Malachim it says that he, he, because he was personally righteous, he dies before all the destruction happens. Um, he's sort of spared from having to witness it, which I actually think is really interesting in the context of the previous you know, when we think about what, what the relationship of dead people to current suffering is. But uh, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. Um, sorry. So he, yeah, so one possibility is that he was unsuccessful, which is this possibility that the Kinag goes with. Personally, I find the other ways of thinking about it sort of more compelling because it sort of makes you, I mean, it's, the him being unsuccessful, I think, solves problems a little too neatly for my own uh, inclination. Um, and I think that it's more interesting to me to think of this idea of, of there's something, well, I guess it's kind of a related thing that in some way there is something that no amount of him being righteous can fix, which brings me to, I think, and I said I was going to talk about sort of psychological pain, but I'm just thinking about Yoshiyahu, who has, he actually did a whole bunch of the reform after being told that it was going to be um, unsuccessful. Uh, and I think the idea of, of sort of knowing that either you have messed things up or just things have been messed up so thoroughly that there's nothing you can do about it. Um, there's, just, there's just no way to repair it and sort of having to live with the, the pain, the fear, um, and the failure of just things are like, not all things can be fixed. And I think that's kind of maybe part of what's going on here. It's not his personal failure, but on a national level in a certain way, like sometimes you can't make up for things. Sometimes you don't get a second chance or a 54th chance or whatever we're up to here. Um, so I think as, as I said, sort of my project here, I know I've been talking a lot, but it's not just to like introduce ideas, but I think, part of the point is, I'm not gonna to try to solve that. I think the point is kind of to sit with that unpleasant feeling and, and, and sit with that, that feeling of, of sometimes you don't get to fix things and sometimes you have to just live with the consequences. Um, and secondly, I think Yoshiyahu who, who sort of, right, he is personally righteous, the people are, are wicked um, and there's nothing he can do to change that. And he, he dies, it's sort of, a chesed or kindness to him that he dies before all the suffering happens, but he doesn't die a very pleasant death. He's shot, according to Midrash, and as you mentioned, also in the Kina later on with 300 arrows. Um, and he does suffer. Um, and that's part of why Yermiahu is mourning him with this. Um, and it really brings up that age old question of the suffering of the innocent along with the wicked, right? He's the good guy, quote unquote, um, and his personal righteousness can't save him, and he's still suffering because of the collective sin, which again, um, that's what Robert Rankin is going to talk about later, I think, uh, the theodicy, why good things, uh, bad things happen to good people. Um, but I don't think my place here is to sort of discuss the ideas of that. I think the point of the morning and the keynote is to just 
rather than trying to like grapple with it. Just sit with that. Sit with the fact that, yeah, innocent people suffer. Good people suffer. Um, and what I think I'm going to try and think about while I read this Kina is sort of just like letting that sit, letting that weigh on you a little bit. Um, because before we get to all the solutions and the explanations, like, no, that, that's really awful. <laughs> um, and that's something to sort of, I think, dish above is a day to, to try and just feel that. Um, even though this wasn't really my project, I couldn't um, <laughs> sort of end on that note. Um, and I did, I want to just come back again to this idea of things being broken and unfixable. And I think there is something sort of tragically beautiful about the fact that Yoshiahu knows that he's beaten, knows that there's nothing he can do about the fact that, you know, the doom of of the people is coming uh, and he fights tooth and nail anyway. Um, I don't know what to make of that because he's been told that he can't fix things and he's trying anyway, but I do think there's something sort of heroic about that, um, about, you know, he's told to despair, he's told to give up now, nothing you can do about it. Uh, and he tries to do something about it anyway, um, which again, this is, this is sort of me just like with my thoughts, um, but I think there is something Quite remarkable about that, which is how I want to sort of end with that thought of, um, yeah, sometimes things can't be fixed, and sometimes the only thing you can do is try anyway. Which again, I think I think that's a nice note to end on because, though again, I think sort of the point is to sit with the unpleasantness. That's the sort of, I think, a sort of light at the end of the tunnel in a certain way. Um, that's all. I would love to hear people's thoughts on all of the Kina specifically. Um, this, yeah, the suffering of the innocent and when things are irreparably damaged. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Please, Wendy. Yeah, so Noah, if we can share the Kina with everybody, then we can uh, then we can recite it together. Thank you so much, Chaya. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you.
Okay, so our next kina is Isaiah Levanon. And Alan, are you are you ready to introduce it? I think you just have to unmute yourself, Alan. How's that? Better? Yep. Uh, yeah, can you just scroll up? That, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> so we're all familiar with the theme of this kina as it is part of our liturgy, both in on uh, uh, Tisha B'Av, but also on Yom Kippur. Um, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with the story itself, uh, except for some background. Before I get to the background, uh, as uh, others have pointed out, and as David uh, certainly uh, emphasized, these are brilliant pieces of literature, uh, and every sentence is rich with references to uh, other sources. Um, uh, in the second line, this is out of Echa uh, itself. Um, and um, you know, <clears throat> there's another line shortly after that, which I'm. Uh, yeah, uh, which is a reference to. Um, uh, Mordechai in the uh, Megillah. So, I mean, every sentence here is rich with the reference. I invite everybody, when we if we have time to discuss, to find your own references. But uh, as I, as David pointed out, these are <clears throat> written uh, by either an individual or individuals who are deeply versed in the texts of the Tanakh and the Talmud. Um, also, as David pointed out, and uh, I think he opened up a discussion without wanting to have it fully discussed, there's a purpose to the uh, reading of this uh, story on Yom Kippur, which is dis uh, distinct from the purpose of Tisha B'Av. On Yom Kippur, um, this is a kapara. Um, the idea being that uh, somehow the passing of a giant of Torah uh, is a kapara for us all. Um, and it, it sort of sounds like a, uh, a concept that we ordinarily would associate with Christianity, uh, but it's clearly embedded in Judaism. Um, for example, in uh, Shemot Rabbah, 
<clears throat> discussing Vasita et Hakarashim. Rabbi Hoshia Ashum Shehu Omed is asking why there was a superflu superfluous uh, letter in the verse. Uh, and the response is Ashum Shehu Omed Lamishkan Shim in the future, God says, there will be not a Mishkan, the low Mikdash, and there will be no Mikdash. Uh, so similarly in uh, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, um, <clears throat> and this perhaps has to do with um, why, what is the relationship between the death, the martyring of these 10 great uh, scholars and the uh, mourning over the Mishkan. Um, in Rosh Hashanah, the death of the righteous is equivalent to the burning of the house of our God. Um, that's on 18b for those who are doing research. So um, in on Tisha B'Av, this is of course Ikina, and we're mourning a loss. On Yom Kippur, uh, whether we buy into that concept, the loss is a kapara. Um, I don't want to belabor that point. Uh, it's way beyond my capacity. Um, I do want to say on a personal level, I was reflecting on all this over the last week. Um, and I happened to have uh, watched a film that I'm sure you've all seen at least once. I was watching it, I, I've lost count. And that is uh, Shawshank Redemption. And the, um, the scene I was thinking of was following the event where the prisoner breaks into um, the warden's office and plays that beautiful uh, opera. And for a moment there, you know, he, and, he, and he exposes the sound to the entire prison. So all the prisoners have this moment, or at least he, he hopes they have this moment of feeling human again. And uh, he of course is severely punished and he comes out of, um, you know, isolation after I don't know how many days. And he's at the cafeteria talking with the prisoners about how, didn't you feel what I was feeling? And don't you realize that there's something they can never take away from us? That's something that is inside of us. Um, and the prisoners who have, who have been institutionalized for years don't really understand what he's talking about. And he's baffled by it, but he has not lost his humanity. I think the bigger picture of what's going on with this story is that the Romans apparently believe that destruction of the temple um, would do away with this uh, constant irritation in Palestine. Um, and if you read this closely, the Kina is about the martyring of 10, but they didn't all happen at the same time. The first two are coincident with the destruction of the temple, but the others are later. And in fact, there's a reference with Rabbi Akiva itself in the text 
of the keynote when it's introduced uh, with Me'acharav um, at Rabbi Akiva. It happened at some later point. They're not happening all at the same time. And that is of great significance, I think. Um, the Romans realized that the destruction of the temple did not kill the Jewish people. And the Jewish people lived on through the Torah that was being taught by these inspiring and brilliant rabbis. Um, and as we've learned through history, even the destruction uh, under awful circumstances of these rabbis did not end Judaism either, because what was essential in the teaching of the Torah is what remains inside of each of us, which can survive. Now, I know it's not uh, popular to look for silver linings on Tisha B'Av, but I think that is the silver lining that uh, not that the people um, are not vulnerable, they're very vulnerable, and we will suffer, and we do suffer. And the uh, emotion, uh, it is profound, but as for the destruction of the Jewish people, that, that takes a, a much bigger, uh, the Romans were biting off much more than they realized they could chew. Um, I have much more to say, but I don't want to say it all myself, and I know time matters, so feel free if we have time. Otherwise, you can go ahead, Wendy, and read. Thank you so much, Alan. Okay, so we're going to recite Kinah number five together now. Uh, and Noah, you can just kind of keep it scrolling, that will be great.
Okay, uh, our next kina is Hacharishu Mimeni Vadaberat, kina number six. Uh, Ruth, are you are you ready to introduce it? Yes, I am. Okay. All right. So this this kina follows it follows really nicely after the previous one, Arzei Levanon. And this kina is one of several who are commemorating not massacres of, of ancient, ancient times, but massacres of, you know, a little bit medieval times. So we move from the, uh, the Asar Haruge Malchut, and now we move into another horrible period of the Crusades and the, and the massacres that occurred then at the hands of the First Crusade, especially as they marched through Europe and especially Germany on their holy mission to free the Holy Land, but they didn't care about what they were doing along the way that was not so holy. And so the, the, uh, the composer is uh, some, some it's attributed to a Rabbi Meir Ben Yechiel, but um, I'm not sure about that. So we could just let it go. As someone who, it sounds like he was there. He's, he's, he's speaking about something that he saw almost like Yirmiyahu. And he speaks in the Yirmiyahu way as he's, as he's seeing these things happening. And he has the same, he has the same, um, I don't want to say chutzpah, but he has the same um, attitude of Yirmiyahu. He's angry. He's very angry about what is happening. And he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't pull his punches. So the Crusades, remember, started at the end of the 11th century. The first crusade was uh, like at the end, you know, in the 1090s. And the point of this kina is, is following in the in the line of how Alan Septimus presented the first the, the previous kina that the destruction of Torah and Torah scholars is as much as or even more tragic and damaging to the, the to Klal Yisrael than just the destruction of a building. So we mourn today for the destruction of the temple, but we should also be mourning, and that's this what this kina is is uh, presenting, we have to mourn the destruction of Torah centers and the Torah giants who are the, they are the receptacles of Torah. You can destroy a building and that's sad, but when you destroy the people who live the Torah and teach the Torah, that's tragic, that's a catastrophe. And that's what seems, and that is what the, the, the poet, the mourner here is emphasizing. And, I think it's 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 important to point out that this is the, that Rashi lived through this the time of the Crusades. But remember, he was born in France, 
And he went to Germany to study because the center of Torah and Torah, especially the, you know, um, the, the learning and the teaching of the Talmud was in Germany at that time. And the three major centers were Speyer, Worms, and Mainz, those three great German, old German cities, which are usually referred to as an acronym, Shum, Shin Vav Mem, Speyer, Worms, Mainz. And that's where Rashi learned his Torah. That's where he learned what he had. But then he went back to France and established a second center. And we can look at Rashi almost as like a Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai of his, gener of his time. He single-handedly went back and founded his Yavne in France. And when the Crusaders came in and destroyed the German centers of Torah study, France survived. And even though the Second Crusade in 1146 did sweep through France, and there was suffering there, there was not the complete destruction that there was of the German centers of, of Torah. And so the Tosafot of France survived, their Torah survived, and, and that's what we have today in, in the Ashkenazi world, because Ashkenaz was pretty much wiped out when the Crusaders swept through Europe. And so this, um, this kina presents a new problem for that we haven't really noticed before. There were some stories about it in Midrashim in the, in the Second Temple times. But here we have the horror of the Crusaders in their, in their horribleness and their real brutality. They would always present conversion or die. But the conversion was, uh, and it was fake news. Even if you converted, they would still torture and kill. And so these communities that were, that were faced with the, a crusader attack and given this false hope of, well, convert and your life will be saved. They knew it wasn't true. They knew they, were, they could very well be tortured and mutilated and, and suffer a horrible death. And so here is the, it's the Masada question. Do you commit suicide and die quickly? Or do you just wait and see what happens and then die a horrible death? And not only are you worried about yourself, but now this poet is worried about and describing the worry of those communities because their children were also involved. Are their children going to survive as Christians? Or are they also going to be tortured and killed horribly? And this is something we, I, you know, this is not a question we, that the poet answers. He can't answer it. He's just angry. But I myself, I, I still can't, I still can't grapple with it. Um, if I knew for sure that my children were, were going to live and be taken care of, then maybe there's the hope that, they, that they'll somehow find their way back to Judaism. But if I am 99% sure that they're going to be tortured and, and mutilated and murdered too, if I only had a pill I could give them, I would. But in the times of the Crusades, there was no cyanide pill. There was no quick death. They, the, the parents had to slaughter their children if that's what they, if that was their aim to save them from a more brutal death. So uh, this is a real, this is a horrible kina. It's a, it's horrifying. 
um, but there is but there is still beauty in it. And then that's what we want to appreciate also. Um, so the, the kina is divided into five stanzas and each stanza ends with this plaintive refrain and you're pointing to it. I will sob as I tell my tale and mourn or moan. And I will raise my voice in distress. This is what the, the mourner, the lamenter, that's his refrain. He is, he is broken. And there are many phrases in this, on this kina that echo Echa, Iov, Yirmiyahu, Yishayahu, and Tehillim also. In fact, that first, the refrain of Arid Besichiv Ahima called Nihi Arima, Arima, is from Psalm 55, the Arid Besichiv Ahima. And then from Yirmiyahu is the second half. They're called Nehi Arima. So he is, so the, the Konain, the, the, the lamenter, is quoting Psalms here and your meow in his refrain. And just to give you a, some indication of, you know, just the, um, the beauty of his words, even though what he's describing is so horrifying, they are so poignant and so beautiful. So if we scroll down into the second stanza, where he talks about, uh, let's see, it's Berosh. Uh, so it's, uh, it's one, two, three, like it's Berosh Kol Chutzot Nivlatam Kesucha. That's a direct quote from Yeshayahu, chapter five, verse 25. So he's lifting whole verses out of the, 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 the Nevi'im who are giving him the words that he needs. And then there's a, there's a, a, a poignant cry in, in the fourth stanza that starts Velochasu al Gever Ugvira, there Aval Azru Givura Yitera, Lahalom Roshu Likrutz Shizra. He's describing how the parents had to smash the heads of their children and sever their spines. And then he says, but this is what I have to say. This is what they have to say. We are not worthy. We did not merit to, to, um, to bring you up in Torah, to raise you to be Torah, Torah Jews. Instead, we are bringing you up as korbanot, as sacrifices, and and just smoke, sweet-smelling smoke. That's what you have become. And so the I, 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 that juxtaposition of lo legadelchem, to raise you up, to bring you up, is contrasted then with the horror of nakrivchem keola, but we are bringing you up, but not and as raising you to, to get older, but we're bringing you up as a korban right now. And then he, but then after the fourth stanza where he describes in terrible detail about what happens to them. And 
Then he talks about the lottery, who goes first, which sounds a lot like the Eila Eskara, the, the previous Arze Halavano, who goes first. And then so now we're in the end of the uh, fourth, towards the end of the fourth, or actually it's no, no, it's that's in the middle of the fourth stanza. Uzikenim, Dishenim, Vira'ananim. Do you have that up there? Zikenim. You all recognize those, those two words. That's from Mizmar Shele Yom Shabbat. We sing that every Shabbos in Shul. Zikenim, but these are the Dishenim Vira'ananim Yuhiyu. And so the, the, you know, the, the, the juxta, you know, it's the horrible juxtaposition of those words which are sung on Shabbat about, about someone who is dedicated to Torah and is, sits with peace and quiet and enjoys being in the house of Hashem. These zikenim, dishenim, vira'ananim, heim hayu nidonim, they're the first ones who are going to be killed, who are going to kill themselves unless, they will be killed unless they killed themselves. And then, a few lines later, these, these fathers and these fathers who were so Rahmanim, now they have been turned into creatures that are so, 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 so cruel. And he uses the... He uses an, an, an animal. I can't, I, you know, the animal that he's designating as cruel. I can't even, I don't want to identify. I don't see animals as cruel, but now they are cruel. The hefisu al avot the albanim. That word, the hefisu, they cast lots, which uh, is also a horrible thing where the lottery, the pious today in Israel is, is a source of, a building, you know, every every you know, JCC in uh, in Israel has you know mitzvah payas, like the the lottery money went to to build all of these centers for for young people to come and and enjoy. And now hefisu al avot albani. Now they're casting lots, like Haman, to destroy. And uh, before I go into the fourth stanza, which is about the Torah, there's a horrible scene, the horrible vision, which resonates in us today, more, uh, you know, across the centuries. And that's in the second stanza, where he says, Ech shavat masot simcha. And then he says, Kol panim parur. All these faces have turned dark. V'chol rosh korcha. Every head is shaved, is bald. And every beard is cut off. And that's, to me, that recalls the images of how the Nazis um, belittled and embarrassed and tortured Jewish men by shaving their heads and cutting off their beards. And here, this is, they didn't make it up. The Crusaders started it first. Um, and it's just, a, but it's a horrible image for us today to read. And then he finishes in the fifth stanza, he turns to the Torah, to the Torah giants who are also lost in this. It's not only that civilians were killed and murdered by the crusaders, but they turned their attention and they, and they hunted and killed on purpose as the Romans did. They recognized 
The Torah is what's going to keep them alive. And their giants, their scholars, they have to be murdered. And that's what they went after. So the stanza, the fifth stanza is all about the destruction of the of the giants of Torah. The um, as it says in the second line of that, al tofsei mishotayich uporsei michmorim melachayich v'chovalayich b'mayim adirim. Your sailors and your rope handlers in the mighty waters. Who are the sailors and the rope handlers? They are the Talmidei Chachamim who learn and who sail the Mayim Adirim, the Mayim of Talmud, the deep sea of the Torah. They are the ones who have, are attacked and are destroyed. And they that image of cutting through the valleys and chopping off the mountaintops. That's what they said about Akiva, that he could, you know, take up, you know, take the mountains and grind them up in his, you know, in the brilliance of his mind. And then he ends with the same, the same cry that Echa ends with. And that's towards the end of the fifth stanza, where he says, Ad matai tabit. He turns to God and he says, Ad matai tabit. How long? How long are you just going to look and do nothing? Ro'e kal sitarim. That's God who sees all the secrets. Kanei Be zealous for your Torah. Asher bazu neharim, which is just, it's just being flushed away by the rivers. It's Torah is being ripped up and the people who teach the Torah being torn to pieces. And they're just being thrown on the bonfire. How can you hold yourself back? Adon kol yitzurim. How can you let this happen? How can you stand by? How can you watch and say nothing? And that, of course, reminds us of the end of Eicha. Ki ima'os astanu, kafatsta alinu ad You've already rejected us. Your anger now is just too much. How can you keep doing this? And so this is a... The, the, this cry is coming from his heart. He is seeing this as Yirmiyahu saw the destruction. And the cry that he says is, how can you stand by and watch this and do nothing to stop it? And that's how he ends. And that's the, that is the question that hovers over that century. It hovers over our century too. And I can't answer that. But this, the, but the, the Konin here gives very fervent voice to it with all of his all of his his references to the poets to the prophets that i've uh that i've mentioned and if you are familiar with yumiyo and yishayo and tehillim the words will jump out of the off the page after you so that's what i have to say thank you so much ruth thank you for that great introduction uh noah if we can um, have Kina number six on the screen and then we'll scroll through it and recite it together. Thank you. Thank you. 
So beforehand, Ruth was talking about 
um, this kina as being also kind of reminiscent of more modern events. And we wanted to ask uh, Rella Feldman to share some thoughts uh, about thinking about the Holocaust in the context of Tisha B'Av. And then after Rella is done, we will um, recite kina number 11, which was composed in uh, memory of, of uh, the victims of the Shoah. Uh, so Rella, whenever you are ready, please. Okay, thank you, Wendy. Um, it's been a very moving program all morning. And, you know, when you, you, when you track the historical, you know, events and, you know, we were discussing the Crusaders and of course the uh, most recent, the historical event that is the most glaring is the Shoah. And um, I am a daughter of, I don't know if people know me on this Zoom call, but my parents were both Holocaust survivors. So what I will do is, it's just personal with just one family and one, one opinion and one thought, but just to share their story with all of you uh, briefly. Um, and um, I mean, I wish they were here to do it themselves because hearing it from the survivor directly is the most effective and most poignant way. But uh, as time is marching on and history is taking our survivors and my parents have been gone for over 30 years. But my parents had a bit of an unusual story in that they were a bit older than most of the people that many of you may know have been and grown up with survivors because they were actually married in a normal time in their lives in 1931 in a shtetl in Poland and had years to live as a young couple. And the way I, I always say the way young couples will move to the Upper West Side for a period of time or forever, but they moved to Krakow, which was the nearby city, a cosmopolitan place. My father was, uh, they were middle class. He had a small business. A year after the marriage, they had their daughter, whose name was Esther. And three years after that, they had a son whose name is Shmuel Menachem. And I have a daughter named Esther and a son named Shmuel Menachem. Um, they were living their lives um, the way young couples do with young children. My mother was a homemaker and the war uh, caught them, you know, completely unprepared for what would happen. They knew difficult times were coming, but no one could have anticipated the, that this war would would target also women and children. And they thought it might be difficult for the men, they might take men for labor, but you know, by the time reality, but by the time they realized what was happening, they, they were completely trapped. And their path took them uh, first to the ghetto in Krakow, where they continued, where they lived with their children and just say, my, my sister was born 1932, my brother was born 1935. They were in the ghetto from 1942 until the ghetto was liquidated in March of 1943. And that was difficult, but they were young enough. They were in their 30s. They could work. Uh, the children somehow were there. They were able to sustain them. And it was in March of 43 when the Krakow ghetto was liquidated people were deported uh, to camps. They were sent to a very nearby 
forced labor camp. It was not a death camp. It was a forced labor camp called Flashes, which if anyone recalls the film Schindler's List is depicted very prominently in that film. Um, my father went first because no one knew what was happening. My mother actually remained in the ghetto in a hidden underground bunker that they had outfitted just in the event of, you know, trying to save, to save themselves and, and just have a place to hide. My father went first to Plasher. My mother was in this bunker that had some food provisions, but not much. Um, and she was there with the children alone for two, for almost 10 days. You can just imagine, you know, hearing, you know, boot, boots stomping above her, not knowing what was going on, not even knowing if it was day or night, having to, to sustain them. And he managed through some subterfuge, my father, to get some guard to come back into the ghetto with him, told him he had some, something valuable that he could have. And he returned to the ghetto and smuggled my mother and the children into Plasher, which is, you know, I mean, he bribed whoever he had a bribe and he got them into Plashev. And there were other children being kind of hidden in Plashev. They weren't the only ones. They were almost, there was something like 300 children being hidden in Plashev with their parents. But that unfortunate day came to an end in May 44. So for 14 months, uh, they were in Plashev, men and women separated, somehow sustaining their children there who were not babies uh, at that point in time, 1940, now it's 1943 to 44. And in May 44, uh, Clash of Camp was liquidated and everyone, the, the, um, the children were sent away first. There is this very horrific scene in Schindler's List with the children on wagons. They had lured them out of wherever they were with, with music and you know some treats and the children are being taken away. Their parents are seeing them being taken away and they know what's coming and it is it was the end. And that was the end. That was the last time my parents saw their children and we actually commemorate he always did the last day they saw them, which was the 22nd of ER, which, which had become in our family, the yard side for my brother and sister. And from there, uh, my mother went to Auschwitz and then on the death march and then to Bergen-Belsen. My father was much luckier. He was actually on Schindler's list and went to Brunus, Czechoslovakia. And as soon as he arrived there, he knew that for him, really the war was over. And he was there from about, I, I think about June of 44 until the Russians liberated in the further East in, Jan in February, excuse me, of 45. And my mother wasn't liberated until the war was actually over in May 45, and she was really very, very ill and ended up in a British, she was liberated by the British and ended up in a British run hospital. So now my father makes his way back to Krakow and everybody, I always imagine the extreme chaos of the immediate aftermath of the war and people are searching and they're looking at lists and they're trying to find who, who might still be alive. And he, 
he didn't know, you know, they, there was no way to know. And there was, she didn't come up on anything. And he was there much earlier than she was. And um, he once told me that refugees had, after the war ended, that refugees could travel by train without fare. So he's just started like going, trying to see where, you know, he would meet people, you would meet people. And you'd say, where are you coming from? And did you know women there? Were there women there from Krakow? And they might say yes. And people would scribble their names on a piece of paper. And if someone was heading back toward your town and they say, if you meet anyone from my town, tell, you know, here, you know, you'll see, they'll know I'm still alive. I'm, I'm just recuperating and I'm coming. And he actually saw her handwriting on a piece of paper, just her name. And so he knew she would return. And he just went back to wherever they stayed. I never got the full story of where they were because people had taken over their own apartments, but where they were waiting. And sometime in July of 1945, she came home and they were reunited. And so very unusual that they were a couple from before the war who remained a couple. Um, though they had lost both of their children. And from there, they eventually ended up in a displaced persons camp in Linz, Austria, where they used to, they were, they had tremendous sense of humor. My parents were extremely happy people. Um, in, they, they managed to set aside their grief and their losses. And I was raised in a very loving home. But they were, he used to call themselves professional interferers, because as you know from, hist from history, in those DP camps all over Germany, and where most of them were in Germany and Austria, young people were getting married and wanting and having babies. There was the highest birth rate, actually, in those DP camps in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And people didn't have parents. And my parents were the closest thing because they were, quote unquote, an original couple. They were a couple, an established couple. They walked countless young people to their chuppas in whatever those settings were in those DP camps. And um, after, you know, it's, I, I think, I think of the women in Mitzrayim, you know, having babies despite what was happening in Mitzrayim and my they, they didn't initially want to have any more children after this war, after what they had suffered and lost. But with a little bit of time, and my mother's biological clock was almost there. She was 40 years old. And they, she, she, put, she, she made it happen. And I was born in that DP camp in November of 1948, just six months after the State of Israel was established. And, um, and from there, a year after that, we made our way to the United States. I'm sitting here with my grandson, one of my grandsons, who's actually the son of Shmuel Menachem Feldman. And it is, so Tishaba for my father, it, this is again, just very personal. I mean, he, he once said to me, I had hundreds of Tishabovs in those six years. And he was not, you know, um, he didn't fast on Tisha B'Av. It just was something, maybe his own personal rebellion against, you know, Yiddishkeit, because they never really, I never felt that rebellion in any way. You know, they established businesses, that they, they, we had families, I went to day school, everything was, you know, I mean, except you always knew this history and this loss 
hanging over us, but life was quite normal in men in in most ways. You know, children of immigrants, as as myself, my cousins, we lived in a community with a lot of survivors. So I used to say the only adults I knew who didn't speak with an accent were my teachers in school. Everybody I knew had, had an accent, but. Um, you know, that's just something. So that's what I wanted to share with the Drisha community um, in just giving you a personal accounting and a personal history of one family. And it, it is mine. My maiden name was Levenstein. My parents, were Sally and Isaac Levenstein. No, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, Rabbi Silber, it seems like maybe in order to make sure that we finish on time for the start of Rabbi Eichmann's class and to give people a few minutes in between, maybe we'll move to the very last kina, to kina number 13, which is Elitzion. Yes. Um, and we will uh, sing, we'll sing it together. Elitzion is the traditional kina that's sung at the very end of the recitation of keynote. It's both about uh, the mourning for Zion, but it's also, um, and I think this really relates very much to the end of what Rella was just saying, right? The Zion is compared to a woman crying out like a woman in childbirth, Bitsiraha, which is both a time of great pain, but also there's kind of a, a hope of redemption, exactly as Rella was describing in those DP camps, right? Even in the depths of despair, there's this uh, hope that that something good can come out of it. So uh, we will sing Elitzion together and then uh, conclude the morning's uh, study and recitation of keynote. And I believe that the first shiur is at 1.15, but maybe Noah will tell us more about that afterwards. Okay. Elitzion the chip to
people are joining us from lots of different places, but for people in the New York area, Chatzot was at 101. So for people who have the custom of moving to chairs, uh, now <clears throat> is a fine time for that. Um, Rabbi Slippers, anything else we want to say at the end? No, I thank you very much. Uh, thank you everybody for participating. We could have gone for several more hours. There's no question. But I think there's, um, I think a lot of important issues were raised. I think that I would welcome the opportunity to hear from Rella and perhaps others as well, more about their reflections on the show. I also grew up with survivors and uh, different story that my parents were not survivors, but I grew up with them in Jackson Heights. I think their stories are both very inspiring and very important educational. And as time moves on, I think uh, there's the danger that we'll hear less and less about that very significant event in, in Jewish history directly or indirectly in all our lives. So anyway, thank you all very much. And we have a whole full program this afternoon. No better way to spend Tisha Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you everyone. If you're attending Rabbi Reifman's class, it'll begin in about 10 minutes and be safe. <laughs>